Great. All right. Bow our heads together and pray, everyone. Father, we thank you. We do thank you for the call of coming together this morning, this beautiful morning, to worship you. And as we pray often, may the words we sing and lift up to you truly be a reflection of the condition of our hearts. God, that we desire to be here, that we delight not only in you, but in the fellowship of the saints and one another. And I pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts for your word. What a rich and encouraging book the book of Daniel is. And I pray that it would not be lost on us, but it would transform our hearts, renew our minds, and draw us to a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, it's hard to know the order in which to cover things this morning. So let's start with opening our Bibles to the book of Daniel. Step one. Book of Daniel, chapter two. I had debated whether or not to go through verse 11 or verse 13. I'm pretty sure we're not going to get any farther, farther than that. Before I actually look at the text carefully, I'm thinking, oh, sure, one big sermon to cover 49 verses. And so, we're not going to do that. We're going to get through the first part because I think it's, this is especially important and significant to laying our foundation. We don't want to zoom through Daniel chapter 2 because of the treasures that it holds for us and there are a lot of interpretive issues and I believe that the Lord wants us to understand what He is saying uh, in this chapter as it contains many profound insights and really a foundation for God's redemptive plan. Of course, more on that as we move on. Um, but Daniel chapter 2, <clears throat> I will read through verse 13 just to be safe. Hear the word of the Lord. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the, to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, <coughs> the command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive for me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. 
The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And so it is, and we, most of us are familiar with this story. It's a very harrowing ordeal depicting the madness of the king and his disturbing dreams and his threats against his own counsel. I mean, he is ready to wipe them all out. They are useless. And he wants to know the meaning of this dream. And it's easy to get caught up in the back and forth. And we understand this is the word of God. It is important for us. <clears throat> but I do believe that the most important part of this passage is found near the end. And it's this verse right here. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, verse 11, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Hence the title, there is no one else. Now, a statement like that, stripped of its context, could be either terrifying, and I think in this passage it's very terrifying because these wise men, these Chaldean wise men, face looming death if they are not able to answer the king's commands, if they are not able to tell him what the dream is or interpret the dream. On the other hand, a statement like this for a believer in Jesus Christ, and it would be same true for Daniel, is that it's true there is no one else. We have one answer. And we find that answer in God's revelation. All the dilemmas of life, all the problems we face, whether good or bad, we find our answer, our comfort, our encouragement, ultimately our salvation in God Himself as He reveals Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. We know that there is no one else. And so, in a sense, these Babylonian wise men are giving the answer. It's like, now you're, now you're saying something. Now you're speaking the truth. And yet, as we complete the reading of this text, look at verse 12. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So even their excuse offered the king no comfort. And it did not do anything to assuage his anger. So destroy them all. Kill them all, he says. Verse 13, So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. So this story does not really begin on, <laughs> on a very high note, but a very intense one, rather, where these wise men, Daniel included, and his three bros, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they face the threat of death. And we find that this decree is given very quickly. The execution of it is swift and fierce. And then, of course, we're left wondering what is going to happen. But do not let this... Do not miss this. Verse 11. There is no one else. I love this. Because we know someone else. We know there is someone else. We know one who can reveal the truth, who can make clear the mysteries of life, who can reveal Himself to us, and that is the living God. There is no one else. We find this truth abundantly clear in the book of Isaiah. 
You want some encouragement. You want a great reinforcement of how awesome our God is. Start at Isaiah 40 and then read through about Isaiah 48 or 49. It's amazing. But the, but starting in Isaiah 40, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want to. The first thing he says, and he says it twice, is comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. We can look to this as Christians today and say, yes, there is great comfort. And one of the great outstanding themes of this is the greatness of God and the fact that He is the only God. In Isaiah 41, we read verse 4, I the Lord am the first, and with the last, I am He. I'm it. I am God. I am your Redeemer. Later on in this chapter, Isaiah 41, the Lord says something that I think plays well into the narrative in Daniel. He says, Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the King of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. This is exactly what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We will find out as we read on. Something is going to take place. But what is it? The Lord goes on to say, As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards that we may know that you are gods indeed do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. Reading on, there's more texts. In Isaiah 43, verse 11, he says, I, even I, am the Lord and there is no Savior beside me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed... And there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God, even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? And that's what we're going to see in the book of Daniel. We're going to see the Lord acting in an irreversible fashion. We are going to see Him declare that He is the Lord. And this theme will continue in thread-like fashion throughout the book of Daniel. It's like there are things that the Lord wants to point out to King Nebuchadnezzar in general, but to all, or specifically, but to all the earth in general. In chapter 1, we do learn that the Lord is still with His people. We learn that His Word is still true. In chapter 2, we're going to learn that God is holy, right? That He is with His people. And we're going to learn that there is only one God. And we're going to find this even though all the wise men, all the intelligentsia will say otherwise. There's no one else. No one can do this. There is no answer, O king. Live forever. In chapter 3, it's going to continue. It's like the Lord is still revealing Himself to King Nebuchadnezzar. God is Savior. In chapter 3, with the, with the, uh, the, the furnace, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are cast into the furnace, what does Nebuchadnezzar threaten them with before they are thrown in? What? God can deliver you. Who can deliver you out of my hand? God is Savior. Oh, this God can. And then chapter 4, which I believe is the narrative depicting Nebuchadnezzar's actual conversion, we learn that God is sovereign. No matter how much power Nebuchadnezzar wields, no matter the depth of his despotism and his kingly earthly reign, we find that God is even higher 
And he will bring Nebuchadnezzar to the point where he will acknowledge that. He will humble himself to say, yes, there is a God in heaven and he is the true and living God. And he deserves to be acknowledged. He deserves to be worshipped. So, so, so don't miss that overall theme as we move through the book of Daniel. We see these things unpack. We see them, we see them expand. And we see the Lord declare that he is the only one. Listen to Isaiah 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I establish the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. This is exactly what he is going to do in Daniel 2. He says, what? so this is, this is setting the stage. This is the answer to the question, the answer to the dilemma that these Chaldean wise men bring up. Who can do this? Well, if they looked in their Bibles, which they don't, they would find out that yes, the Lord is able to do this. He alone can do this because he continues to be with his people. And I think we're going to see a lot of application from chapter 1. If you look back just a few verses, what is acknowledged from Daniel and his three friends? Remember, they do this test for 10 days, and then they, they pass muster, and then they continue this for the next three years of training. And it says in verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all of his realm. Think about that. That's the context we're in, in this service to the king. And I would say that ten times better is not meant to describe, a, to make a mathematical comparison. Like, yes, we added up all the numbers and it turns out that Daniel and his friends were ten times better. I don't believe this is a mathematical comparison. It's what we would call an absolute comparison. That Daniel and his friends, as God gave them wisdom and strength and courage, were so superior to the Chaldeans, to the pagans, that their, that their input is essentially worthless. There is no competition. It is like bringing a water balloon to a nuclear war. What is that? Like Jerusalem in the reign of Solomon. Look at this. Second Chronicles 9.20 All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Silver was not considered valuable in the days of Solomon. Now, for most of human history, silver has been quite the commodity. It's seen as valuable. But there was so much gold during Solomon's reign that even something as valuable and precious as silver was worth nothing. And I think this is what we have in view here. Daniel and his compadres are so far superior to those who do not know or believe in the true and living God that they are basically worthless. There is no competition. And what happens as chapter 2 go, continues this narrative is that this, this very statement of superiority is proven. It is worked out. Here's, an ex here's the example of that seen in Daniel's ability to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is and also to interpret it. He's getting this from somewhere, but where? So this, this absolute superiority of wisdom and strength and courage 
and to reveal dreams and mysteries is put on clear display. And so going to the text itself, look at verse 1. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So we could simply mark this section of the text, the dream. There's going to be a bunch of D's going down the list. So the first is simply Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So this is in his second year, it says. Now remember, Daniel is is trained for three years. And so he's most likely, some would say, a wise man at this point. And so there is an apparent contradiction in the dating since the text says that Daniel's training is in three years. So one of the resolutions brought forth in this, because we understand that the Bible does not have any contradictions. We resolve it by saying that the training itself was not a full three years in length, but simply occurred during three different years. For instance, if you start school by taking a winter intensive in 2023 and then attend class for the entirety of 2024, and then you start another semester in January 2025, you've only been in school for a total of 13 to 14 months, but you have been in school for three different years, in three different years. Same, same case with Jesus' uh, burial and resurrection. We say three days. The, the gospel narratives, and even Jesus even talks about the sign of Jonah. Three days, three nights. But we understand that Jesus died sometime Friday afternoon. He was put in the tomb. He was there all day Saturday, and then he rose probably very early on Sunday morning. And yet it is maintained based on times and dates in that culture that he was actually in there for three days. So we don't have any kind of problem with that. And some even would say, yes, this actually did happen in, 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 a, in a regular sense that this was still during his training. So even while, to, to kind of punctuate what happens when God is with a person in, a, in an intensely pagan uh, society and environment, is that even while Daniel was being trained, what God has to give him and how God ministers through him is still vastly superior, even though he's still a trainee. He's not experienced. He's not seen as someone with anything to offer, and yet the wisdom that God gives him far surpasses that of the Chaldeans. So whatever, wherever you land your plane on this, we don't, have, we don't have a dilemma, we don't have a contradiction. It works out either way. So into the text, into Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it says he had dreams which probably points us to the fact that there's, uh, he, has these, he has this same dream a multitude of times, and that's probably why it disturbs him. And as we go on in this chapter to see what he actually dreams, you can see why something like this would bother him. It's very vivid. It's very clear. He can, he can clearly account for the, the, the makeup of the statue with the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the clay. It is imprinted in his mind. And it says he's his spirit, his inner man was troubled and his sleep left him. Some of us have dreams like that, right? Just, you know, we call it sometimes the recurring dream. I had this weird recurring dream that I've had since I was a child. And for some odd reason, even though I don't dwell on it, this dream keeps coming back in increasing frequency. Now, in, in many, in most cases, we have particular dreams that we wouldn't say they're visions from God, but the reasons we have these particular dreams is because we think about them all the time. We, te we typically dream about things uh, that we think about often. And so this is, but this is a dream on another level. This is a dream in which God, the true God of Israel, is communicating something to him. He desires to use Nebuchadnezzar 
as an instrument to communicate his will. And of course, Daniel is on the scene and he will be able to do it. So he's troubled, right? He's, in a sense, he's despondent. He's depressed. He's to the point where he cannot sleep. And so he's come to the point, no doubt, of such misery, of such, uh, of such angst, of such perplexity, that he has to call for his servants. And this is where he makes the demand. That's, there's the dream and then the demand. But then in verse 2, it says, Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. So here's what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he, he, he's so disturbed. What does he do? I mean, nothing new under the sun, friends. He does what everyone else does. We see this especially on the news, whether it's, whether it's Fox News, whether it's CNN, right? No matter what. what, what when there is a problem, what do we do? We call in the experts. We call in people who know things. As experts are saying, the COVID vaccine is 100% effective. Yeah, you, exactly, right? The experts say a lot of things. Experts. <laughs> the experts have signed an affidavit saying that this is typical of Russian interference. You know, just Russian disinformation. We've, we've heard it all, right? But when there is a problem in society, we tune in and what do we hear? We want to hear the expert. Someone tell me something to bring me clarity, to bring me comfort, so I know what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar does what most people would do, especially unbelievers. I would hope that our natural inclination is to say, what does God say about this? Because he's the resident expert on everything, so it's hard to lose. But he brings in the experts, and he brings them in categorically. But note who he brings in. Magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. All the way down. So this can refer to uh, fortune tellers. That's the magicians. Typically we think, you know, David Copperfield or something, or David Blaine. You know, he's doing card tricks. But most likely... From, from my research, it seems that magicians are most associated with people who were scholars, right? Those who studied, those were, who were well-read. Professors, in a sense. Those who know things. I mean, we do the, hey, who's got a PhD? You know, we, we, we appeal to authority all the time, right? When we don't know something, we say, well, according to this guy who wrote this article, a peer-reviewed article, not, not to mention he's from Harvard and he's a Marxist and he's just writing peer-reviewed articles to other Marxists. Let's put that aside. But they agree, the scholars agree that this is true. So it's more of the, it's the, it's the academy, right? It's the appeal to the academy. Those who, who have PhDs, those who know something. And while it could refer to occultic arts, it, there's a chance that it's, that it's either. But that's where we have the conjurers. And depending on your version, it'll say astrologers, right? Those who look at the stars for knowledge, observe the pattern of heavenly bodies to determine what is going on and what to expect, Use it as, using the, the paths of the stars as, as a form of prophecy to predict what's going on. Right? We do that every February 2nd with Punxsutawney Phil, the groundhog, right? If he sees his shadow, or if he doesn't, can dictate how long winter's going to be. Do the same thing. But those are the... Uh, those are the magicians and the conjurers, and the, then you have the sorcerers. 
These would be seen as the uh, most likely what we would connect with a magician, um, an enchanter, right? Someone who communicates with the spiritual realm, talks to the dead. And then you have, of course, the Chaldeans, right? That's the, that's the last group. So you have four groups, four groups, four tiers of experts. And he's hoping, and I would say in rather de- desperate fashion, to get some answers. So he calls in the whole bunch, not just one at a time, but the whole bunch. Give me some clarity on this. So the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans are, are seen as the leading, the leading group. That's the council. That's what you would call the intelligentsia, those who, those people who really know things, his, his top, his top advisors, right? So Nebuchadnezzar clearly is going out of his way to get some answers. That's, that's the depth of the disturbance of his dream. And so we've got to give the guy a little credit here. He really wants to get to the bottom of this. This, this should strike us as interesting because I think we believe, we, we kind of live in a culture that is becoming, in some sense, increasingly not curious. Whenever there's whispers of the supernatural, things that disturb us, there's always the next TikTok video to get us, to get us distracted again. The next trend. The next fad. We can, I think, in fact, the very first, the very first sermon I gave at Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church, I was in my in-laws great room out in the forest. And the first, I remember the first time I gave a sermon, I, I talked about about goldfish and how the attention span of a goldfish was something like nine seconds. And that most human beings have an attention span lower than goldfish. That's how easily distracted we are. Like, that's terrible. We don't spend a lot of time thinking deeply or long about things. We don't spend a lot of time reading and considering. It's like we always have a screen in front of us, so we're always constantly distracted. So at least with Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I think we can tell right away that the hand of God is upon him. The Lord is communicating something to him because he can't get it out of his mind. And I think we do well with that. When the Lord is speaking to us through his word, we do well to consider it and to, and to free ourselves from the various distractions that take us away from truly meditating on his word. But one way or another, saint, if you are here today and you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, as we've seen here, will have His way with you. He will get through to you. And we've seen that already. No matter how pagan we were apart from Christ, if the Lord had a claim on us, then He certainly will succeed in making that claim. And this is exactly what He is doing to the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. Very early in his reign, through a young man named Daniel, as we will see. And so there's this familiarity that should strike us. If you want to turn to Genesis, Genesis chapter 41, I think is the, the passage here, Genesis 41. We have talked about Daniel as sort of being a, a second Joseph. Joseph, was, Joseph uh, found himself in a similar situation, right? in exile, in slavery as it were, in Pharaoh's household, and you open up Genesis chapter 41, it says, Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And then the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. And so he is disturbed increasingly 
uh, by this dream. Now note in verse 8, his spirit was troubled. So he's going through almost an identical situation as King Nebuchadnezzar is. He's dreaming these dreams and they just bother him. They don't seem to leave him. And so he has to get to the bottom of it. But what does it say? Same thing. I love this. Verse 8, and Pharaoh told them, his dreams, the wise men, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Same dilemma. There's no one. Oh, but wait, there is someone. There's this guy, Joseph. I just dawned on me. There's this guy, Joseph. He can interpret dreams. And so he's called and then he comes in. And then of course, Joseph, he he knows the dream. That's one difference here. Joseph is, is told the dream and then he interprets it. For him, And of course, what we have similarly is that there is going to be a kind of judgment on Egypt. There's going to be a famine in the land. And in a similar sense, Nebuchadnezzar's dream depicts the judgments of the nations and the growth of the Messiah's kingdom. The, the main difference is, is that Pharaoh doesn't lose his mind. His face doesn't contort in anger. He, Pharaoh doesn't seem to be the same hothead that Nebuchadnezzar is. Nebuchadnezzar is so angry at his wise men and he considers them so worthless, he's so fed up, he threatens their very lives. And so there is a certain desperation to this passage. But either way, if there is not an interpreter, we find a very dire situation. We find death looming. In Nebuchadnezzar's case, death for the wise men. And in Joseph's case, death through famine of the land of Egypt. And of course death of the messianic line. So there's a lot on the line in either case. And so moving on in this text, he calls all of these experts and they stood before the king and he says, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. And there we have here continuing on in the demand. Then the Chaldeans, all right, here's the, here's the, here's the big wigs. Here's the people who know things. The Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic O king, live forever, tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And so he say, notice the shift here. It says, it says they now tell him, they speak to the king in Aramaic. So that kind of leads us to an interesting transition in the book of Daniel. Up to this point, Daniel is written in Hebrew, and in the ancient manuscripts from here on to believe the very end of uh, Daniel chapter 11, it's in it's in Aramaic. Sorry, Daniel chapter 7, verse 28. So that's all Aramaic, right? And it's interesting because this part through Dan, Daniel chapter 7, most of, most of it deals with the rise and fall of nations. It's dealing with the Gentiles. And Aramaic was seen as the common language. It was the language of Babylon, the language of the Gentile power in that point. So it seems appropriate that at that point, from, from this point on to the end of of chapter 7, God is dealing with the Gentiles. He is revealing His plan for the nations. And then once you get to, to chapter 8 through 12, this, the perspective shifts again, and it goes back to the Jewish perspective because now God is dealing with the latter days of the Jews. And so this is why Daniel remains so pivotal to our understanding of the Bible, not just for prophecy, but I think even more importantly to our understanding of God's redemptive purposes for the whole world, right? We don't look to Daniel simply because it has some cool stuff about the future. We look to Daniel because it has an amazing, it's an amazing revelation about God's plans to save the world, for God's plans to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. 
And so God begins this by revealing this to a king. Proverbs 25.2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. And so we see Nebuchadnezzar, the glory of King Nebuchadnezzar searching out this matter. So, O king, live forever. O king, live forever. I mean, does the flattery never stop? Depending on what position you're in, if you've ever been in charge, you probably, or if you've been the boss of something, or if maybe if you've been a CEO or maybe an officer, there's, there's, no, there's no shortage of sucking up. There's no shortage of flattery. There's no, there's no want of people trying to gain your favor by telling you what you want to hear. And so here they're doing this. Oh, king, live forever. That's the first. You can tell. You can tell this is going to go sideways, right? The first thing isn't we have the answer. Oh, king, live forever. May you live everlastingly. And right now we just see we just see Nebuchadnezzar. He's over it. He is over it. Even though they say, "Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation." I think we know what's in Nebuchadnezzar's heart at this point. He knows he's not going to live forever, and he knows his wise men, his sorcerers, his astrologers, his magicians, his Chaldeans, all of his homies are going to die with him. His days are numbered. He is disturbed by this dream. And he says, no way. The command from me is firm. Right? Here's he's making his demands. Command from, from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. You know, let me tell you something. No one says that to you unless they can do it. <laughs> and Nebuchadnezzar can definitely do it. But look at this statement, going back to the statement from the Chaldeans, this, O king, live forever. It's amazing that they would say such a thing. This points to the, don't miss this, guys. This, is, this points to the futility of those who speak and yet speak without God's word, who rely on human pagan wisdom. But this is futile unless God himself says it. Only God has the right to say, live forever and it be so. Think about Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. Chapter 37. It's an amazing vision that Ezekiel gets. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Isn't that this is an amazing contrast? O king, live forever. We don't know. As opposed to, O king, God knows. God knows. You can tell they're already on the wrong track. But this is very timely for us to be able to say, the Lord knows. The Lord has an answer. Though none, none other may. I know the Lord does. There is someone else who does know. And He is the Lord. And so he says, again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus the Lord God said to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come back to life. Right. Restoring his people. Then go on to verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. This is the same same situation that we find ourselves in Babylon right now. 
completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves. This is the same purpose we see applied to Nebuchadnezzar. What is God's purpose for Nebuchadnezzar? And then much of Babylon. That they may know, that they may know that he is the Lord. It's one of the most common themes in the book of Ezekiel. Then I will do this, then they will know. I will do this, then they will know. But what is that thing that we must know? What is what Nebuchadnezzar must know? And what is it that Christians know and must continue to be faithful to speak forward? The Lord is God. He is the true God. He gives life to the dead. He saves those who cannot save themselves. He makes known the truth. So here we are in the narrative again. This threat from King Nebuchadnezzar. Be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. He is sick of it. He's not taking it anymore. Listen to what R.J. Arushduni says of Nebuchadnezzar. His waking response had been a hatred of the religious and scientific practitioners of his day and a desire to expose their futility. Having known the terrors of the unseen and knowing how vividly a man in his proudest knowledge only skated on the thin ice of the scene, his urge was to mass destruction. It was comparable to the resentment of the sick for the healthy, of the dying for the living. We find that Nebuchadnezzar has indeed had enough. This thing has probably been going on for a while. And so he, des and so he designs to put them to death if they cannot tell him the dream. But who can do such a thing? Then he says in verse 6, but if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. I love this. There's no neutrality with King Nebuchadnezzar. If you can't do this, you're going to die. And if, but, if you, but if you can tell me the dream and the interpretation, you will not only live, but you will be exalted in this kingdom. People will know who you are, right? Either way, people will know who you are. But will it be honor or will it be dishonor? That's the question. And he says, if you cannot, your houses will become, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will become a dung heap. There's a similar passage in 2 Kings about this where the altars of Baal are t torn down by King Jehu and they're made basically into a latrine, a place where you go to the bathroom. I mean, can there be a more disgraceful way of putting someone to death? Yeah, where your house was, now it's a public toilet. That's how, that's, that's what I think of you and that's why what I want all of Babylon to think of you. That's all you are good for. That is how worthless you are. Similar thing happened to, if you're familiar with the Roman emperors, never been able to confirm whether or not this is true, but I've been told and I've read that the emperor Commodus is the emperor from which we derive the word commode, that he was so hated as emperor, they named a toilet after him. So you see the dishonor. There's no two ways about it. Die dishonorably or live with honor, King Nebuchadnezzar says. And with all that he has dealt with, it seems, with all that he has put up with, with the manipulation and the lies and the duplicity, he is tired of it. So going on in the text. Verse 7. And we would call this part the delay. 
They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. So we have the delay and the decree. They're trying, they're bargaining and the king is still tired of it. Hence his outburst. But they're just, they're just trying to bide their time. Even though they are clearly running out of it. He knows. And the king is very, very angry. I know this for certain. See, there's no doubt. That is one thing that is clear. So going back to this, the delay, the buying time. Right? I think that is something that as believers, right, we are able, we, we, are, we are blessed to have the word of God. And if, we, and if we study it, if we meditate on it, if we memorize it, if we draw near to Christ as a matter of habit, to delight in Him, to hear His Word, we don't have to buy, buy, bide our time. We don't have to bargain for time. Sure, as, as Daniel will, will reveal, yes, there is time to, to seek the Lord, to consider an answer, but we're not doing so to manipulate. We're not do, doing so to trick or to lie. We're doing so so that the truth of God may be known clear. But we are called to step up in situations like these and to speak the truth. To make God's truth known. And point to the uselessness of this pagan wisdom and magic that is on display here. And so I think the, the application here is very clear. When nations are judged, when kingdoms are crushed, when kings are brought low, who is left to speak? Who is left to speak? You think about that. This goes back to the very theme. Is there anyone else? Is there no one who can speak to this matter? Is there no one who can, who can interpret this dream that has been given to the king? Is there no one left to speak? I think this uh, warning from James Jordan is appropriate and arresting. He says, the saints had better step forward and speak or they will die with the kingdoms. I mean, think about it. Can we accuse God of wrongdoing if we are silent? If we are silent like the pagan? Whether from cowardice or simply simple biblical illiteracy? We simply don't know what the Word of God says and so we don't speak up? Can we accuse God of wrongdoing? Can we accuse Him of inconsistency? Can we accuse Him of failing to discern between the righteous and the wicked when we act like the wicked? When our silence against ungodliness is consent, when our silence is seen as, oh, we're just content, content, we're, God's good to me, I'm blessed, why say anything? Why ruin the blessing? Our silence is also, think about this, is your silence in the face of all the ungodliness in society a partner to the conspiratorial work against God and His saints? You know, if the saints behave in this manner, should it surprise us at all that God at times will remove the lampstand of the church along with the altars to Baal? Should it surprise us at all? I don't think so. I got this email. got this email from Zach Conover of End Abortion Now. And here's the heading. Louisiana is abortion free. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. So I, so I opened the email. And it says this, we wish we could have written that. 
The truth is that abortion is still legal in Louisiana. Goes on to say, we were on the verge of completely ending abortion in Louisiana, saving thousands of babies every day. Pro-life Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, stopped it. It's amazing. Just, just let a little bit of time go by and people are revealed for who they are. This is why, guys, this is why, this is why we are very critical of the pro-life movement. We're not just taking pot shots, but when you, ana- when you analyze what is actually happening, we find that the, pro- the pro-life movement is severely lacking, severely insufficient. And I would say, in a sense, just needs to go away. Abortion needs to be abolished because abortion is murder. It's child sacrifice. And we were, I mean, how many of us, how many of us, when we heard that the new Speaker of the House was an evangelical Christian, right? An awesome dude. We're like, oh yeah, that's great. Praise the Lord. And then this. And it makes you wonder, is this to, is this, are we, again, are we bargaining for time? It's not the time yet. We got to get more seats in the House. It's not time yet. We got to get more seats in the Senate. We got to get those votes. And if we save too many babies, like, follow the logic here. Follow the, follow the insanity here, guys. I want you to see this. If we, if we outlaw abortion, if we make it criminal, if we save babies, we're going to lose votes. I mean, what is there left to say? This is the compromise that is leaked into the people that we normally vote for. And why are we here? I think one of the greatest reasons we, we're, we're at this point is because we fail so often to say anything. We fail so often to say, ah, there is, there is someone else. There is someone else. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the King of, King, of kings and Lord of lords. And he says abortion is murder. He says murder is wrong and it violates his kingly law. Is anyone going to say anything about that? Or are we going to keep letting this stuff go by? Oh yeah, we got that. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of babies are being butchered in the womb every day, which should be the safest place in the universe for a baby, but those votes. Honestly, guys, we should have the mindset of it would be better for the Senate to be dark blue than to keep kowtowing to their demands. It'd be better for the whole, <laughs> our entire government, for our entire Supreme Court to be stacked with straight up Marxist judges and have the church finally have some conviction and courage to say something. Although I doubt that if, (laughs) I I have a feeling that if the church actually did say something, then the result would not be a deep blue government. But in a sense, it would be encouraging because God would tell us once again, government can't save you. In fact, as we see from King Nebuchadnezzar, government's going to kill you. (laughs) Who's going to step up? Who's going to say something? But I find that, you know, as pagan as Nebuchadnezzar is, is, he is the ideal cynic, right? I think he represents a lot of the cynicism we see today. Even with pagan religion, even with, you know, an Americanized Christianity. Think, Think about that. Let's break this down. What makes a cynic? A cynic is a person who has negative opinions about other people and the things that they do. Nebuchadnezzar is very cynical toward his wise men. 
A cynic believes that human conduct is motivated wholly by self-interest. We see this here. He truly believes that they are trying to take advantage of him. That they are going to speak, verse 9, lying and corrupt words. See, there's the decree there. Lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. You are, you are hoping that I snap out of it, that the dreams stop, that I, that I get to sleep again. You're hoping that as time goes by, I'll just forget. But that's not going to happen. A cynic believes that only selfishness motivates human actions and who disbelieves in or minimizes selfless acts or disinterested points of view. Finally, a cynic is one that believes that other people are interested only in themselves and therefore doubts that they can be good. This is exactly his mindset toward his, toward his pagan counselors. You are no good. And of course, again, what is, what is the answer? We come, we, we come to that point. There's this puzzlement. There's this decree. I am sticking with it, right? He's saying the command is firm. Some say that he forgot the dream and that the Lord made him forget it. So to put these, these uh, Chaldeans on the spot, regardless, Nebuchadnezzar's decree is still the same. There's one decree for you, and that is death, if you fail to tell me the dream. And then he says that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Yeah, prove that you're actually worth something. And then the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. I love it. Look, at, look how they deflect. Oh, you're asking for us way too much, O king. This, this is, this is, we're in a unique situation. Look at your histories. No one has ever made this request before. In a sense, they're saying, you're being ridiculous. This is too much to ask for anyone. And in, and in their experience, they would be right because they do not know the Lord has asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. So you, here you see that from the decree to the desperation, once again, trying to excuse themselves from the responsibility that the king is demanding from them. 11, for, moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the kings except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And here's the challenge for us this morning. Are we going to be, as Christians, are we going to be like these pagans where we have an opportunity to step up and say, I have the answer. You know, I, I've gotten to know most of you. And one thing I really appreciate about Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church is this is a church full of a bunch of nerds. A lot of you out there are nerds, right? Maybe you were that nerd in school. Now place yourself, you know, maybe in elementary or middle school, maybe high school. And that question is asked, right? That question. Maybe it's in chemistry. Maybe it's in history, right? And you're looking around and no one knows the answer. And maybe the teacher knows you know the answer and he's ignoring you. And you're like this. You're raising your hand like, I know, I know the answer. Just call on me. <laughs> and you're just like, because you got it. This, this, is, this is how passionate Christians need to be at a point like this. Like, ah, we know the answer. We know the answer. It's the Lord. Does anyone around here know the Lord? I mean, there's application on several levels here. Most of us will not stand before a pagan king, but we stand before a pagan society who's barely even curious about the things of the true and living God. And yet here we have the answer. I believe that one thing that is a common denominator of a pagan society is, is evident in King Nebuchadnezzar. It's a cynicism, right? It's a cynicism. Always, always doubting, always questioning, 
but never finding the truth. And often it's because no one is saying anything. And we should be that person, even if we're seen as obnoxious. Even if we're seen as, oh, your speech is violence. we got to be the one saying, I, please, 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 please ask me. I mean, I, th- I think we find that in something Spurgeon suggests. You know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he says, you know, he, he's a Calvinist, and so he believes in, you know, there's an elect and there's an, a non-elect. But he said, hey, when you're preaching the gospel, make sure that people are climbing over you. They're tripping and falling over you because you are the roadblock and saying, wait, wait, don't go any further. Stop. I've got good news. Like, you're getting in the way. You're not just letting them go. You're just letting them go headlong into eternal destruction. You've got something to say to them. And I think this is, this is the moment I think that's just great because, because there is a man named Daniel who knows someone else. There is someone else. The Lord knows and can declare it and He will use a faithful believer named Daniel to make the dream known to the king and will interpret the dream. And you see this, 11. The king, what the king demands is difficult. Yeah, from our point of view, yeah, what the king demands is impossible. How can we read the king's mind? But the thing is, is that God knows. And so even though it's difficult, it's not a problem. It's not a problem for the Christian. Because we know the God who knows everything. We know the only true God. And he can dwell, or he can declare it to the king. He can declare it to anyone. And they know, they're right. No one, no one can declare it to the king except God's. Exactly, you're right. Whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Here is where they are dead wrong. Here's what we have to see. Right? Who, who, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Here we come to the doom because of this decree. But think about this. Do we know a God? Do we know a God who dwells with flesh? We do, don't we? I mean, from the, the whole Bible is a meta-narrative about God dwelling with people, starting from the garden. And then he undwelled with them for a time, but he's always been in a way with his people. I mean, I looked, I looked up verse after verse. This is, this is, this is, I mean, this is like elementary for the Lord. This is how he ought, this is his jam, right? The, the Babylonians had this God that is distant, right? He is far off. He doesn't dwell with people. But the God of Israel, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, dwells with people. Exodus 25.8 Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell with them. God calls them out of slavery and what does He want to do? Hey, I want to be with you guys. So build a sanctuary for me so heaven can meet earth once again and I can be your people and you'll be my God. That's what Exodus 29 says. That I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Leviticus 26, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. So this is plain. Get this. This is plain to the believer, to a believer like Daniel. I mean, this is like, what? What do you mean God doesn't dwell with people? That's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. God does dwell with people. He dwells with those who he chooses to call to himself. You don't know God at all, but but I do. And it goes on and on. 
Listen to Deuteronomy 23, 14. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. See, the Lord's not just stagnant. stagnant. He walks as he did in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to defeat your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy and he must not see anything indecent among you or he will turn away from you. I mean, and on and on. I mean, I, I, we, we, we do not have the time to go over the verses, verse after verse, about God's desire and prerogative to dwell with his people. Listen to Ezekiel 37. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Right? This is, this is, this is elementary to the Jew. This is elementary to us. Yeah, God dwells with us, of course. And then you see the fullness of this in the person of Christ. Whose dwelling place is not with flesh. Does that sound familiar? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. That's John 1. God not only dwells with flesh, but God became flesh. How much, how much more accountable are we with that revelation from the New Covenant? That in the person of Christ, God has made Himself known and dwells with us. Colossians 1.27, Paul talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. So now he's one-upped it again. Not only does God dwell with us, He dwells in us. And we're being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, Ephesians 2.22. I mean, from beginning to end, this is clear as day. And we face the same pagan culture, the same pagan rulers, the same pagan society. And we must, Christians, be courageous and vigilant and watchful and be able to say, yes, I do know. There is someone else. You do not know Him, but I know Him. Call upon Him and be saved. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6.16 where Paul is quoting the Old Testament. I will dwell with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And think about this. God uses from this narrative one man in Babylon, Daniel, to make his revelation known, to demonstrate that God dwells among men. He is not so distant that he cannot be with his people. Of course, we have to come to him on his terms. Recognizing it as a gift of His grace, we come through faith, trusting Him, resting in His finished work in Christ. But He does indeed dwell among His people. And in dwelling among His people, He gives us the answers. He gives us truth. And far be it from the Christian to be faithless in that regard. To fail to speak up. To, to fail to step up. Daniel's one man. And now God has called a multitude to Himself, to proclaim His truth, to point men to Him. To be able to say, I serve a God who does dwell among flesh, and He has the answer. Listen to this warning from Ezekiel 33. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. 
his blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now knowing what we know, this side of the cross, how much more responsibility should we take? How that, that, that easy yoke and light burden should we take upon ourselves to be a watchman? To be a faithful watchman, truth of the gospel at hand, ready to deliver hope to those, cynic or otherwise, who do not know God. May that be true of us. And may we humble ourselves and be ready with an answer, to be ready with the hope that is within us. No matter what the situation is. Even in the midst of a situation like this, where this answer does not, does not help the king's mood at all. And then we have the doom. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And so we kind of end on that cliffhanger, the doom. But we can rest assured going forward as a, as a matter of a sneak peek that even in the midst of this doom and this decree from the king that there will be salvation. Salvation will come forth and Daniel and his friends once again will not only be delivered, but, they, but he, Daniel himself will deliver a saving message of hope to the king. So let's stop there for now. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your love and goodness. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can invest the time to, to uh, go through a pretty big chunk of narrative. And, and there are so many levels um, where we can look at this, so many so many perspectives, so many applications. And um, Lord, you know, we can take comfort in that. You know what we need. You know exactly what we require to, to understand your word, to apply it, to see your spirit work uh, in us and through us, to, to uh, grant us growth and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to galvanize our unity with one another. And so I pray that we would be faithful to stand together, Lord, knowing that Though the pagan may say there is no one else, as believers we know there is someone else. And that is You, Lord, the only true and living God who gives us life, who gives us salvation, who gives us an eternal hope through Your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.